Undisciplined Podcast. It's your host, as usual, Nico Beitendach. Today we have a great episode with Professor Sandro Mezadra from the University of Bologna. I was fortunate enough to speak to him at the Critical Legal Conference that was held between 12 and 14 September in Perugia, in Italy, where Professor Mezadra was one of the keynote speakers and he was kind enough to give a bit of his time to speak about his work. Uh, Professor Mezadra is, of course, very well known. He has written numerous books. Most of our discussion centered around the book Border as Method, which he wrote with Brett Nielsen. But he also wrote newer books in the meantime, namely In the Marxian Workshops, and his newest one that came out this year, again co-authored with Brett Nielsen, called The Politics of Operations. And we discussed that book towards the end of the interview. It was a great interview, and thank you to Professor Mezadra for speaking to me, and thank you for Giacomo Capuzzo at Perugia University for organizing the Critical Legal Conference. Everyone had a lot of fun. The presentations were interesting. It was a good conference, and please enjoy my conversation with Professor Sandro Mezadra. This tune is going out to Marconi To all corners of the globe There ain't no hut in the Serengeti Okay, thank you, Professor Mazzaria. Uh So, I'd like to today just speak to you a little bit about your work and the books that you've written and especially the Borderers Method book, which has been very influential both in my own research and my own thinking in general. Happy to hear that. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a central part of my own PhD project too, international law, border regimes and, and so on. I know you've also written a few books since this one, so I apologize. That yeah, no worry. Mm. This one is Just keep uh, the conversation focused on Borderless Method. I'm happy with that. Mm. Okay, great. So, just to begin with, if we talk about Borderless Method, what is the implication, the basic meaning of taking the Borderless Method methodologically or epistemologically? How is that different or novel from previous approaches? You know, uh, a way to answer... Uh, your question uh, is very simple. Usually, uh, border studies uh, take the border uh, as an object of uh, investigation. And so they uh, remain focused on the border uh, in uh, the literal meaning of the term. Taking the border both as an object of investigation, what we do in the book, and as uh, a method or as uh, an epistemic uh, viewpoint uh, allows uh, to radically widen the scope of uh, the investigation. It allows, for instance, uh, to critically look at uh, a whole set of concepts from the angle of the border. Citizenship, uh, labor, are, for instance, uh, two concepts 
that uh, we investigate uh, in the book uh, from the angle of the border. Many others could be added to those two. But taking the border as uh, an epistemic uh, viewpoint, as a method, uh, also has uh, implications for the way in which you look at the border understood as an object of investigation. It uh, implies a kind of uh, destabilization of uh, the border itself. You know. Borders uh, tend to present themselves as uh, stable partitions as lines traced on the sand and inscribed onto maps, lines. To take the border not only as an object of investigation, but also as an epistemic viewpoint, things become more elusive, more complicated, and I would say also more interesting. And you can for instance, uh, track uh, the proliferation of uh, borders beyond the site of the literal uh, geopolitical border. You can uh, investigate borders, the operations of borders from uh, the point of view of their uh, heterogeneity. You can look uh, at a specific geopolitical border, keeping in mind that there are uh, several components of the border, not only the geopolitical one, but also, for instance, the cultural one, the linguistic one, the social one, and so on, and that these components are not necessarily uh, most visible at the border at the literal site of the border. So from this point of view, I would say that on the one hand, borderless method allows widening the scope of border studies, and on the other hand, it compels to problematize the very notion of what the border is, to put it simply. So this is also a claim from your book that borders are not only lines on maps or lines in the sand, but it's but it's a kind of operation. And once we understand it in that way, we start seeing that instead of a globalized world without borders, actually this border procedure is multiplying. And we find it everywhere. And what is interesting to me is that, and now I'm perhaps coming from a Luhmannian perspective where the border is a method of reducing complexity. But you claim in the book, which is a claim that I agree with, you said that borders don't simply decode the world, which I would understand as reducing complexity, but you say it encodes the world, so it perhaps adds to the complexity. No, that's a good point. I mean, that's a good point. Borders uh, encode uh, the world... Uh, uh, first of all, uh, in the sense that uh, they produce uh, parameters uh, of uh, legibility of the world, of readability of uh, the world, and uh, they fabricate the world as uh, 
we emphatically say in uh, one of the chapters of the book, uh, picking up uh, this uh, Latin phrase, uh, Fabrica Mundi, that uh, figures in the subtitle uh, of uh, Mercator's uh, Atlas and played quite an important role uh, at the origin of modern uh, cartography. So this production of uh, parameters of uh, readability of uh, uh, the world, uh, this uh, production of uh, uh, frames of uh, the world, is a very important uh, operation of uh, borders. And uh, you easily understand that uh, this is uh, also a cognitive kind of uh, operation, in the sense that uh, it corresponds to specific cognitive uh, partitions put it uh, in very simple uh, words, for instance, uh, uh, the partition between uh, uh, civilization uh, and uh, barbarous uh, spaces, but also, you know, uh, the kind of distinction between uh, the West and the rest uh, that was, uh, of course, analyzed uh, in a very effective, uh, critical way by Stuart Hall, uh, but was also a very important point at stake uh, in Carl Schmitt's uh, Der Nomus der Erde mm-hmm. in uh, 1950. You know. And, of course, uh, following this uh, train of thought, uh, you can get to the point in which uh, you discover that uh, borders uh, can also add to uh, the complexity of the world. Since they produce (laughs) new partitions uh, that uh, are usually uh, supposed to contribute uh, to specific orders of the world, but that sometimes, uh, uh, first of all, because uh, they are powerfully contested, add to the complexity of the world. So you mentioned the distinction between civilization and barbarism, and you mentioned Carl Schmitt's Nomos der Erde. Now, one of the important claims for me in Nomos der Erde was the claim that the whole world had been discovered and the use publicum Europeum had become universalized and that the world had no, or Europe had no outside left to conquer. So, given that the, that borders still somehow fulfill the function of creating the inside and outside, the civilization and barbarism, do you think that that can still be understood in a geographical sense, or should we understand it in a functional sense, or who are the new barbarians and who are the new Greeks today? That's a very interesting uh, question. Mm-hmm. I agree with uh, the point uh, you implicitly made uh, asking uh, the question, uh, which means that uh, today, at the world level, it is very difficult to trace uh, absolute distinctions between inside and outside. Particularly if uh, we take uh, as a point of reference uh, 
the overarching distinction between civilization and barbarism that was so important in early modern times to prompt and legitimize colonial expansion and conquest. Nowadays, you don't find the space uh, of barbarism somewhere in the world. It is not possible to circumscribe that uh, space uh, and uh, to consider it as an outside with respect to an inside that we call uh, civilization. Mm. The main point is precisely that the distinction between uh, civilization and barbarism uh, has become blurred that you find, quote and unquote, barbarism inside civilization. This is a point that we make in the book, not only with respect to the difference between civilization and barbarism, but also with respect to a whole set of binaries that continue to be usually employed in order to make sense of uh, the world order and disorder. For instance, global north and global south, or center and periphery, to speak the language of world system theory. So it's clear that uh, we cannot contend that uh, geography does not matter anymore, that there is uh, no difference anymore between uh, uh, different parts of the world, to put it simply. You know. But what uh, we contend, and I think it is an important point uh, in borderless method, uh, is that such binaries do not uh, anymore organize uh, a stable geography at the world level. It is difficult to trace in, uh, on a map you know, uh, the boundaries between uh, the global north and the global south, between center and periphery, because also center and periphery, in a way, multiplies. And you find, you find center and periphery in India, to make an important example. So does it make sense to ask whether uh, India is a periphery? Well, I don't know. Does it make sense to ask whether China belongs to the global south? I think it is an obscuring question, a misleading Mm -hmm. question. A question that does not really help us to understand what is going on uh, at the global level, in the global turmoil we are currently uh, experiencing. So your question is really an important question. And uh, I think uh, uh, we need uh, kind of new uh, conceptual tools uh, uh, in order to make sense of what I was calling before, uh, what uh, we call also in the book, uh, the current global turmoil. Mm -hmm. Also, one of the sources that you draw upon in your book is from Gunther Teubner, and he talks about more specialized regimes and that the law can at best try to manage the relationships between these different regimes and conflicts between the regimes. On the one hand, I'm sympathetic to such a project. On the other hand, I'm wondering, is the, I almost think about it as an algorithm that repeats itself. Is the 
it, would that not be the logic or algorithm of the border distinction just be re-entering itself? And we're, instead of managing this process, we're accelerating it in, in some sense. Wouldn't this create even more complexity and make the problem even more difficult for us to manage? You know, uh, Gunther Teubner has a kind of interesting approach, in my opinion. He has uh, an approach with uh, specific normative uh, implications. Brad and I are not that much interested in such normative uh, implications. Mm-hmm. We take uh, Teubner, if I may put it so, as a cartographer mm-hmm. of uh, global law. And we are particularly interested in uh, the way in which uh, we can speak today of uh, global law. I will put it uh, in simple terms, uh, once again, from the point of view of international law. It doesn't matter uh, whether uh, you are uh, following Schmidt or Kelsen. Then what uh, you uh, will be looking for is uh, simply the vanishing uh, of international borders. That would be uh, your uh, main parameter in order to understand the emergence of a global law. Gunther Teubner invites us to shift our gaze, following uh, the long tradition of legal pluralism he built upon, he invites us to look at the emergence of partial, sectoral legal orders that have no national basis. Mm-hmm. He invites us to look at the multiplication of such partial legal orders. And you are right, the multiplication of uh, partial legal orders implies a multiplication of borders. But these are borders that are quite different from uh, the international ones. So it's not by accident, for instance, that uh, Teubner and other legal scholars uh, follow his uh, lead, uh, hark back uh, to conflict law, specifically understood as uh, a tool to manage frictions between legal boundaries, between the legal boundaries that kind of circumscribe, enable the operations of sectorial partial legal orders. This seems to me particularly interesting. I mean, and we have looked at uh, border regimes, also from uh, this point of view. Um, I think we have been able uh, to, to, to test uh, uh, Toyman's approach. I mean, we re-elaborate it a bit, uh, of course, uh, but we have been able to test the uh, effectiveness of uh, approach against the background of the working of uh, the actual working of uh, border uh, regimes. So to shift it a little bit, not too much, and I know this is in your book, but what do you think is the contain the, the future of the nation state? <laughs> this is very uh, wild, but 
you walk a line between sovereignty and governmentality in the book, but where does that leave the nation state? You don't go all the way in either direction. How do you see that balance? You know, it's a, a wide question. Of course, an important question. But it is also a very difficult question to answer. I have to say that uh, the situation today, September 2019, is already quite different from uh, the situation in which Brett and I wrote uh, what it was measured to 2011-2012. It is quite different, precisely from the point of view of uh, your question, because uh, nowadays we are uh, witnessing uh, kind of surge of a new nationalism at uh, the global level, which is not to be reduced uh, to the West. It's not uh, Salvini in Italy, uh, Johnson in the UK, Trump uh, in uh, the US. Just think of Turkey, just think of Egypt, just think of uh, Modi's uh, India. And we could also mention uh, Russia. Mm. And China in the age of uh, Xi Jinping. So I really think it is a kind of uh, global constellation we are uh, currently uh, living through. And of course this constellation raises uh, several uh, questions regarding uh, the future of uh, the nation-state. My impression is that uh, there is a, a huge tension between... Uh, such political de de developments as the ones uh, I have just mentioned, and what is going on uh, on the ground if you look uh, at uh, the actual working of contemporary capitalism. Capitalism today is producing its own spaces. You know, after publishing uh, uh, Borderless Method, Brett and I, uh, I've been working uh, for several years now uh, on logistics, for instance. You know. And the critical literature on logistics uh, uh, invites you to look uh, at this continuous production of space by capital. A production of space that uh, exists uh, in tension with uh, uh, national uh, uh, spaces and uh, borders. <laughs> of course, uh, you know, if you look uh, uh, at specific borders from the point of view of uh, migration today, a point of view that is prominent in uh, our book, uh, well, the tendency toward the hardening of uh, border is apparent. It is apparent in the Mediterranean Sea, it is apparent uh, at the border between the US uh, and Mexico, but also elsewhere you know, in the world. For instance, in India, once again. So, my impression is that uh, we are uh, living through a kind of transition in which the tension uh, I was uh, just mentioning uh, can also be uh, understood in terms of tension between sovereignty and governance. To go back to the question that you were asking and that we analyze in borderless method. Logistics, in a way, uh, can be analyzed uh, from the angle of uh, governance. 
the way in which logistical spaces uh, are uh, uh, regulated and governed uh, has much more to do with uh, uh, the phenomenology provided by the literature of governance than with uh, you know sovereignty. So I repeat, we are living through this kind of transition. Uh, we are living through these multifarious tensions, and it's difficult to say which uh, will be the outcome of uh, uh, the tension. To conclude, in the book we are very careful not to say uh, the nation state is going to disappear. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we try to do in the book is to map uh, the, the, the huge transformations of uh, the nation state in the framework of global processes, to put it quickly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think this continues to be kind of effective uh, analytical framework, although it must be a flexible mm-hmm. framework, you know, mm-hmm. capable to register uh, uh, the shifts. In these uh, tensions. So, you say a lot has changed in the six, seven, eight years since you wrote this book, and that today we see an increase in nationalisms. Do you think that the functional process of bordering that you saw here has somehow contributed to this increase in nationalism that we see now? The procedure of bordering has that encoded the way that people perceive their role within the nation state? Yeah, I don't know. Let's see. From uh, one point of view, I'd say that uh, the kind of border regime that we analyze in border uh, as measures uh, has become uh, a target of nationalist uh, propaganda. And I am thinking of humanitarianism. In the book, uh, we analyze a situation in which uh, humanitarianism has been incorporated into the working of uh, border regimes. And we look at uh, this uh, shift of uh, humanitarianism, at this uh, governmental turn of uh, the humanitarian reason, uh, trying to shed light uh, on uh, the tensions and contradictions, even uh, on the potentialities that it inscribes onto the working of the border regime. Nowadays, we are confronted with a criminalization of humanitarianism. We'll see, I mean, which uh, development we will be confronted with in the future. But nowadays, I mean, Look at the Mediterranean, look at uh, uh, the borderlands, uh, at the desert uh, between uh, the US uh, and Mexico. I mean, there is uh, an important collective uh, uh, based in Arizona, No More Deaths. They have been criminalized for uh, disseminating bottled waters along uh, migrant routes in the desert. You know, criminalized, you know. It's even more striking than the criminalization of NGOs who uh, perform uh, rescue operations in the Mediterranean, you know, the battle of waters. So from this point of view, uh, you know, uh, a point that we make in the book, uh, we are not the only ones to make it, uh, 
is that uh, border regimes uh, have to negotiate uh, tensions and contradictions between uh, different imperatives. We look at least uh, at four imperatives. Security, humanitarianism, economic valorization of uh, migration, and uh, demography. And we try to track uh, such uh, imperatives in the actual working of border regimes, in uh, the actors that compose specific border uh, regimes. Well, nowadays, uh, security, national security, is definitely <laughs> the overwhelming <laughs> imperative. Uh, and uh, humanitarianism has been uh, pulled outside, you know has been expelled from uh, the border regime in many parts of the world. I repeat, we'll see what uh, will happen in the future. We have not to take this uh, as a kind of crystallized uh, moment, situation. You know. But nowadays we are confronted with an expulsion of humanitarianism. And even if you think of uh, economic valorization of migration, which means, to put it in very short uh, uh, ways, uh, the interest of capital huh, mm. in uh, the management of borders. But it is also subordinated to uh, uh, national security uh, in an unprecedented way. And it is clear, you know, that in many parts of the world, I mean, the U.S., uh, uh, in Italy, in, in Germany, there are capitalist actors, important capitalist actors, who are not at all happy with the kind of uh, uh, evolution of uh, uh, the border regime that uh, I am uh, talking about. Think of, uh, to come back uh, more directly to your question, uh, think of uh, the main slogan of uh, the Brexit campaign. We have to take uh, back uh, national control of uh, our borders. You know, so it's clear that uh, a certain uh, assemblage of uh, uh, the border regime has become a target of uh, nationalist uh, uh, propaganda. Professor, so you also have a new book that came out this year called The Politics of Operations. Again, just as Border is Method, you co-authored it with Brett Nielsen. Do you mind uh, just briefly telling me what that book is all about? Well, it's again a book that I wrote with uh, with Brett, Brett with Brett Nielsen. Mm, so this is the first element of continuity. <laughs> Uh, the answer is uh, yes and no. Uh, there is a, a strong continuity with borderless method from the point of view of the method of research and writing. There is a continuity from the point of view of our interest in what we call in borderless method uh, uh, actually existing global processes. But uh, uh, you will not find uh, uh, many references uh, to the question of the border, to the question of migration in uh, the politics of operations. In the politics of operations, uh, we, we tackle in a very direct way uh, the question of capitalism. Uh, what is contemporary capitalism? Which, is, which are the, the uh, defining features 
of uh, contemporary capitalism uh, that make it uh, a uh, kind of uh, specific capitalist formation. We do that uh, through uh, an analysis of uh, three domains of uh, economic uh, activity that are uh, interlaced, but that we uh, analyze uh, quite in detail in the book. The first one is extraction, the extractive uh, sector mines, but also extensive agriculture. You know. The second domain is... Uh, uh, logistics. I was mentioning it before, and we look at logistics, uh, you know, from the point of view of uh, transport systems and uh, uh, supply chains, but also from the point of view of uh, cutting-edge uh, developments, uh, such as, for instance, uh, platforms, uh, platform labor. And the third uh, domain is finance. <laughs> So we try to let our analysis of uh, those three domains resonate in order to discern a kind of logic that is uh, driving uh, uh, contemporary operations of capital. Uh, we expand quite a bit on uh, this uh, uh, notion of uh, operations of capital. To put it shortly, point we make is that uh, Capitalism today is more and more characterized by an extractive logic. In order to make this point, we also forge an expanded notion of extraction, not limited to extraction in the literal sense of the word, but also capable to come to grips with the actual working finance, for instance. Another uh, important focus uh, of uh, the book uh, is, uh, you know, a vexed question, uh, the relation between uh, capital and the state. And uh, in order to tackle this uh, vexed question in uh, a relatively original uh, way, we, we kind of challenge the prevailing notion of uh, the state which means that uh, we discuss the Weberian notion of the state. We do not want to get rid of that notion. We simply ask, are there other experiences of the state, other figures of the state, other state formations in modern history that uh, can help us more uh, in understanding uh, current formations of state and capital. So we look at the history of uh, colonization and we focus in particular on uh, two uh, important uh, say political but also legal uh, formations that are uh, chartered companies and the concession. And so if you look at the chartered companies uh, and the concession, particularly at chartered companies, uh, you will see kind of uh, uh, intertwining between economic and political interests, uh, a kind uh, of uh, direct political uh, protagonism of commercial actors uh, mm -hmm. that in a way challenge the idea 
of a clear-cut uh, separation between uh, politics and, uh, and, econo- and economy. And the Weberian notion of uh, the state uh, is predicated upon such uh, a separation. So we look at uh, the, the re-emergence of this. We worked quite a lot on, uh, on, uh, on chartered companies in particular, you know, above all uh, on, uh, on the East India Company, Uh, because we had this idea, you know, maybe <laughs> the history of uh, the East India Company allows us uh, to, to understand better uh, what's uh, uh, going on uh, uh, in the city of London today. You know? <laughs> And so we, we wrote, then uh, I, mean, I was, uh, one day I was <laughs> looking uh, at uh, a book by Gayatri Spivak, uh, Uh, because I yet find a quotation for the lecture, you know, and I found a passage that I had totally forgot <laughs> where she made the same point <laughs> on some 15 years before, yeah. critique of postcolonial reason. So this is uh, the, the outline of the book, just uh, to give an idea. Mm-hmm. I will speak more about that uh, in, yeah. the, in the lecture later. I look forward to it. <laughs> yes, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you for your time. It was a pleasure. Yeah.